You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Kareem Dahali to talk about investing for the millennial generation, how COVID-19 is going to impact us as young investors, and how brokerage firms and new investing education platforms are putting themselves at the forefront of technology. Kareem was the Tech Entrepreneur of the Year in 2019 and is currently the founder and CEO of Investor. Kareem and his team are doing something similar to what I'm trying to do here with the podcast, and that is to help provide real, authentic, reliable education to new and young investors. I hope you guys enjoy my conversation with Kareem Dahali. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Millennial Investing. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I'm super excited to have Kareem Dahali. Welcome to the show, Kareem. Hi, Robert. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having us uh, on your show today. Let's start by talking a bit about your background. How did you first get into the investment world? And then how did you ultimately start what is today Investor? It wasn't planned as such. My, my mother really wanted me to be a lawyer. My father really wanted me to be a doctor. But I'm not great with blood. And uh, the thought of having to read all of those law books in, in law libraries also put me off a little bit. I've always had a fascination with international politics and economics. And so getting involved in international finance was, um, in a way, was, was a great option for me. I was actually coming out of college. I was actually offered a job as an oil trader for one of the big oil majors. But I turned that down in favor of joining JP Morgan on Wall Street way back in, as a management trainee way back in 1983. So that's, um, that's how I started. And I must say, I was, I was super lucky. You know, in my career, I got to live in the US several times. I got to live, uh, obviously, in Europe. Uh, I lived in Japan, lived and worked in Japan and Singapore as well. And I traveled just about everywhere else. So you know, if I was after an international exposure, I, I certainly you know, more than got it. So it was fantastic from that point of view, from a personal point of view. I learned so, so much. The other amazing thing was that over that period of time from 1983 until I, I eventually left in 2012, the finance industry went through an incredible evolution. We saw see, massive deregulation of investment banking services and, and financial markets. We saw a huge growth in leverage with the rise of hedge funds and a great increase in, in trading volumes. We saw geographical expansion. We saw tremendous product innovation. Actually, that obviously ended up in a little bit of a mess in 2008, 2009. But it was just an absolutely fascinating time to be part of the, I'd say, the wholesale financial services industry. And then obviously, in, you know, with the crisis back in 2008, all of that not only stopped, but it also went into reverse. And about that time, you know, there was this uh, little company called Facebook was kind of coming to the, you know, becoming more prominent. And I realized back then that, that we could use social media to really open up financial markets and the world of investing and all the things that I absolutely, you know, I'm passionate about, you know, the way financial markets, I, I think, are one of the most exciting things on earth, but we could use social media to open up financial markets and, and the world of investing to so many more people. I think our, our fundamentals, it was really, you know, the reason that I got into it is I just saw this massive opportunity to do something, you know, which I think ultimately is going to be essential and also very, very positive. And it was a, you know, it was a huge opportunity to, to use social media. But the thing that, you know, really, you know, the observation behind that is that for me and, and for us at Investor, Financial markets are fundamentally about people, people and people's emotions that drive financial markets. When you see the way you know, markets move up and down, yes, of course, computers are involved in executing trades, but ultimately the decision makers and the reasons that market move are down to people and, and human emotion. Those are the fundamental drivers and how we react to the political and the economic situation. I'm sure we're going to talk about COVID later. It's how we react, but it's really fundamentally about humans. And for me, social media was just the perfect technology to harness that power and to bring people together and into the financial markets. And so that's where it started. You know, I mean, I probably first had the idea back in you know, 2010, 2011. 
And then I realized that just as the previous 25 years had been all about wholesale financial services, the future was really going to be all about you know, retail financial services and, and the revolution that we could drive using, you know, also not forgetting the mobile phone, because the mobile phone back in 2010, 2011, was just getting into its stride as well. I mean, the, the smartphone, obviously. So it's the combination of mobile technology, cloud technology, and social media that really created this massive opportunity, which has unleashed the whole world of fintech as we now know it. Yeah, there really are a lot of different pieces or different dynamics that have really worked in really forming what Investor has today. A lot of the technology has really changed how investing is happening, especially for the younger generations. With you having had such a successful career in investment banking and financial services, working for some of the world's most well-known firms, what made you want to branch out on your own and start a fintech platform? You know, you had a stable career, it would seem, a successful one at that. So what made you want to make the leap into entrepreneurship? I think it, you know, it's it's twofold. One, you know, you've got to be you've got to be driven, I think, by purpose. And I think, you know, one of the ways in which the world is changing today is that it's no longer good enough to make a lot of money and then decide that yeah, I'm going to give something back in the way of some form of corporate social responsibility. I think that modern organizations need to have a very strong social purpose at their core. And the thing that I realized is that with the massive increase in debt in the world, we've now got about $250 trillion worth of debt in the world. And you know, sometimes I describe it as the biggest you know, theft of human history, because we're basically, when you, when you pile up debt, what you're essentially doing is stealing from the future to spend today. And you know, we're, we're effectively, the world is effectively stealing. You know, we're stealing from our, our children and our grandchildren because they're the ones who are going to have to pay back the debt. And so you know, I realized that there's something really powerful that we need to do to, to offset that. And the way that you offset that is instead of stealing from the future to give to the present, actually, you take from the present and you give to the future. And that's the purpose of investing. And when you look at you know, who's going who's to invest, who can we rely on to invest? Actually, the people who are basically stealing from the future are governments and corporations. And you know, what I realize is what we need to do is to empower as many people as possible to actually do the opposite and to start investing. So that was kind of the, the big motivator was really to try and promote investing. You know, people talk about democratizing investing or whatever, but it, to, to my mind, you know, financial sustainability is as big a threat to our society as environmental sustainability is to the planet. You know, if we're not careful, and you look at you know, some of the, the political unrest that we've got, you know, what causes that? It's economic misfortune that causes some of the political and the social problems you know, that we see. And I think if we don't address the debt problem and the debt burden by investing in our future and creating the means today by which ultimately we're going to be able to pay off that debt in an organized way, in a controlled way, in an orderly way, I think is, is the right way to describe it, then we're creating a huge problem for our, for our society in the future. So one level, you could, you, know, you could say investor is my attempt, you know, my, my way of giving back and my attempt to solve what I think is going to be a massive, massive problem for society in the future and one that we're, you know, we're ignoring for the most part today. And obviously, you know, it's, to be sustainable as a business, yes, you've got to have a strong social purpose, but you've also got to be able to make money as well. So I, I saw not only something with a very, very strong social purpose, but also something that can make money and can make a lot of money and be, and be very, very successful as a commercial enterprise as well. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. 
Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. So when we look at just the broad brokerage industry as a whole, especially with nearly everyone going to no trading commissions, how can your platform compete with some of the behemoths like Fidelity, Vanguard, and even now Robinhood? So you know, one of the interesting things when we look at our client stats, we have about seven times the retention of a typical fintech. And it costs us about 10% of the cost of many of the, the names that you've mentioned, in fact, all of the names that you've mentioned, if not less, to acquire a new user. So it's very, very clear to us that we're competing and we're competing very, very effectively. And I think there are a lot of there are a lot of older companies that are, that are struggling to compete and to evolve and, and change. And I know from you know, my professional experience you know, working in the finance industry, just how hard it is for a large financial organization that's been around for, for a long time to, to change and to evolve effectively into you know, what's a very, very different uh, new world and new way of doing things. And I even think that some of the newer players that you mentioned have got it completely wrong because you know our approach at investor is fundamentally different as i mentioned earlier you know we our core belief is that fintech actually isn't about finance and it's not even about technology fintech is about people and it's the interaction of people and it's about empowering people fundamentally that's what fintech is fintech to me is the manifestation of the information revolution that has disrupted so many other industries, which has basically put power in the hands of individuals, individual consumers. That, to me, is what fintech is all about. So for us, we think of fintech as empowering individuals, empowering, and I think that's one of the most powerful trends in the world today. So everything that we do on our platform is about empowering people. We invest massively in helping people learn how to invest not in helping them you know, buy and sell things. Because for us, the second observation that we have is that investing isn't an event, it's a journey. And so a lot of other fintech companies, you know, they think investing is just about buying and selling. It's not, yes, it is about buying and selling. It's the, that's the last 1% is about buying and selling. But there's the 99% that happens beforehand, which is where you're following the market, you're forming a view, you're talking to people, you're reading content, you're practicing, you know, testing out your investment strategy you know, before you start to commit you know, real, real dollars behind it. And I think that's the 99%. And what we've done up until now is really focus very heavily on that journey. We focus on investing in people and we focus on helping them take that journey from knowing absolutely nothing about investing to becoming fully confident and knowledgeable investors. And then, yes, when they're ready, when they've got the confidence and the knowledge, then they can actually open up a brokerage account, open up a bank account, start trading crypto all in one place. So I think you know, we have some huge differentiators uh, relative to the competition. And I think, in fact, they're going to be asking themselves one day, how on earth do we compete with Investor? So when we think about that customer retention, do you think it's really that social 
piece that really makes the difference. I've seen some platforms, even Robinhood posts like articles, not full educational resources. And I'm not a Robinhood expert by any means, but I've seen them do some things like that. But there's not really a social component. But with with your platform, there is. So do you think it's that social idea where people can communicate and talk to each other and almost play games with each other to really keep them on the platform? I think it's essential. I think you know one of the things that we do naturally as people, that we love to do naturally as people, is to communicate with each other. We're naturally social creatures. And so communicating with each other, interacting with each other is, I think, a part of our DNA. The other thing, I think particularly the millennial and the, the Gen Z uh, generations, the way they like to learn these days is from each other. They don't want to trust experts, people like me who've been around for a long time who may have an agenda. They'd rather talk to family. They'd rather talk to friends. They'd rather talk to total strangers that they've never met through a social network and get advice and help from them. And so I think the social component, what we've seen with our community is probably the most powerful thing that we've created on Investor is this astonishing community of people who share a common interest in learning about investing and learning about the financial markets and have become incredibly supportive of each other so that people can come onto, onto our platform and they can look for help. We have a, a new league for all our new joiners every month who can join the league, you know, join with the thousands of other people who are joining our platform. And they immediately, they've got a social environment and a social network to start to bounce ideas and, and to get help. And it's it's really, I mean, it's so heartening to see this fantastic collaboration that's going on within the community. And I think that's special. And I think that, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, when you step back and look at, you know, what is it that people like to do on their mobile phones? They love to play games. They love to interact with each other. They love to consume content. And every so often they'll buy and sell things. And so Investor is a place where you can do all of that. You can play games. You can, you can interact socially. You can read amazing content. And actually, we'll talk about the Academy. The Academy is, is not just content. You know, we're not paying lip service to a bit of throwing a bit of content at people. It's a full structured educational syllabus. And yes, and when they're ready, they can start to buy and sell things in, in the real world as well. So I think it's really, really powerful. And I think the power of social interaction and the investor community is really, really sets us apart from, from every other platform. Yeah, I think what's interesting is social platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they've already done all the legwork to tell you these are the types of things you need to do in a social platform to keep people on the platform. So now all you had to do was take what they've already done, merge it with fintech or investing essentially, and do the two together. And then you have good retention because people, we already know people like those things. And then they're starting to take an interest in, in investing. So I think the two together makes a really big difference. And I think that was a really good strategy for you guys. I used to tell people that if Mark Zuckerberg and Michael Bloomberg had a love child, it would be called Investor. And uh, you know, that, was, that was exactly right. You know, we, we built an entire social network and we've made it, you know, as my CTO would say, you know, we've made it a vertical social network that's focused on investing in the financial, in the financial markets. I really like that way to explain it. Michael Bloomberg and, and Mark Zuckerberg, that's a bit of a powerhouse too. I would say that's a good analogy. So I know a lot of people listening to the show are into stock investing, but I think a lot of them are also interested in hearing about how brokerages work. So if a brokerage is offering products and services for free, similarly to what you guys do, how does this type of company generate revenue, become profitable, and ultimately become a self-sustaining business? It's a, it's a really good question. And I think it's a question that a lot of brokerages are really grappling with. You know, as we mentioned earlier, transactions and the process of buying and selling is really becoming a commodity. And it's a commodity that's priced at zero. Everyone's competing down to zero. So if I built my entire business model on offering something for free, then you've really got to, and I'm not talking about investor, but other you know, competitors, then you've really got to wonder how on earth they're going to survive in the long run, you know, irrespective of how much short-term success they're having. You've got to ask yourself, how are they going to survive in the long run? And I think you know, maybe the best example is to look at a super successful company, consumer company like Amazon. And you would have thought that delivery, you know, delivering packages to people is also a commodity. You know, logistics is something you just got to get really, really good at. And, and you've got to take it, you almost take it for granted that you're going to have to be super efficient at delivering things to people in, in an e-commerce world. 
But you know, what Amazon have done is that you know, with the concept of Amazon Prime is they've turned it into a massive, you know, hugely profitable business where people are subscribing monthly, you know, for the convenience of getting delivered a product the next, you know, the same day or the, or the next day. So I think the, you know, the, the two things I would say is, yes, the transactional components are, are free and it's going to be really hard for people to make money out of them. Yes, there are things that you can do as a broker in terms of you know, what's called in, in the brokerage industry payment for order flow, where you basically take all the trades that your customers are doing and you sell them to the, uh, to the highest bidder. It's almost a little bit like, um, you know, if, if I need to be careful, but it's almost like a little bit like stealing from the poor and giving to the rich. It's kind of the opposite of what you would expect because you're, you know, you're benefiting from all the small investors and you're, and you're taking all of that value and you're giving it to wealthy investors. So it's kind of a little bit the opposite of what's advertised. And there are other things that you can do in terms of lending, lending out securities and making money that way. But in our view, the real way that you make money in a sustainable way is by providing an outstanding customer experience, outstanding customer service, and convenience. And so for us, you know, we have, you know, we're a relatively small company. A third of all of our employees are actively engaged in our community on a daily basis, supporting people, talking to people, answering their questions, providing them with a level of support and service that you don't see anywhere else. Any one of the hundreds of thousands of people on our platform can direct message me at any point in time and get an answer. And you know, that's not something that you'll get. And maybe that's, you know, we're about a million, we've had about a million downloads of the app. So maybe when we get up to 100 million, you know, I'll struggle to get to answer all of those DMs. But but I think customer service is one thing. The convenience of being able to, for free, to trade fractional equities, to have a, a bank account that's FDIC insured, not SIPC insured, I mean, proper federal insurance, and also to be able to trade crypto all in one place. I think that's, that's really important as well. But then ultimately, it's the experience. And it's the, as I said earlier, you know, we invest in our community and in our members. And investing in the experience, in the educational experience, so they're learning from fantasy finance, they're learning from the community, they're learning from the academy that we've created. I think that's how we expect to make money. It's by adding value to people's lives, adding value to their, through, through education and to the experience that they have on investor. That's how we ultimately expect to get compensated. So when you talk about selling those trades to financial professionals, is that essentially selling the trades from individual investors to high-frequency traders? Is that what that's about? Yes. Look, that's how, you know, that's how some of the most famous fintech disruptors have built their entire business model. You know, there are a lot of people, you know, some of the people in, in the industry used to be high-frequency traders themselves, and they thought, wow, this is a fantastic way to harness all of these trades from retail customers who aren't known for being, having great timing, is to take all of those trades sell them to the high frequency traders and make money out of it. That's the fundamental model. And I think there's been a little bit of, I'm not sure that that's been transparently communicated to the, the millions of people who have signed up to that model. That has been one of the big drivers of this new zero commission, zero commission model. And so for people who are listening to the show today who have heard of high frequency traders, they have a general idea as to what this might mean, but they don't know exactly what it is. Explain to us what a high-frequency trader is and then what it means to sell retail trades to them and why that helps them. Okay. So let's assume that the price of Amazon is trading at $2,000 is where someone is willing to buy it and you know, $2,001 is where someone is willing to sell it. And, and in the real world, the, the actual margins and the spreads are much, much uh, smaller than that. What a high-frequency trader does is he tries, he or she tries to buy and sell almost at the same time, both at 2,000, to buy them at 2,000 and to turn around and sell them out again at 2,001. And by doing that, you can make that, that $1 in profit. In, in, as I said, in the real world, the actual amounts are much, much, much smaller than that. But you're hoping to make a very, very small profit on a huge amount of volume. And it's perfectly legal, you know, so long as you're providing the end consumer with what's called the best bid in the marketplace or the best offer in the marketplace, then there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with, what, uh, with what any of those people are doing. But the, the reality is that there's always a small difference 
between the best bid and the best offer. I mean, those prices aren't identical. So there is an opportunity for someone who is willing to trade a huge number of shares uh, very, very frequently, and that's what high-frequency traders do, to make a small margin between what's called the buying price and the selling price, the bid and the offer. And that's what high-frequency trading is all about. What they need in order to do that successfully is they need a lot of volume. They need a lot of people to want to buy and to want to sell at the same time. And so they're willing to go to some of the, the some, to brokers and to say, instead of sending the trades to the marketplace, to the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, send all of those trades to us and give us the opportunity to make that small margin out of all the buyers and all the sellers in the marketplace. And that, that's what's happening. That's the job of the high-frequency traders. Yeah, I think that's the big key is the volume and the dollar amount that they're doing it with. Because when you talk, when you say a dollar, like you said, that's high. I think a lot of times we're talking even pennies or 10 cents at most. And people listening to the show might hear, I mean, if I'm going to make 10 cents on a trade, that's not worth it. You know, a lot of times before free commissions, there was that wouldn't even cover commissions. So what is the point? But when you're talking hundreds of millions or billions of dollars that are going after these pennies in single trades, that starts to add up and starts to become material once you do hundreds of those across a single day and even across an hour. So that's where the high frequency... That's why they get their name is because they have to do it in high frequency to make, to make their money. And if anyone's interested in this, there's a good movie called The Hummingbird Project. And it's actually interesting. There's plenty of books and resources that you can go read too. But if you're into movies, you can go watch that movie as well and, and learn a little bit more about, about that and just how important even like milliseconds are for high frequency traders. So how does, how does the high frequency traders impact retail investors? What is the difference if, if the high frequency traders didn't exist? How would the retail investor's life be different than it is today? And what has been changed because of high frequency traders? So high frequency traders do add an element of liquidity to the marketplace. It's not, it's not long-term liquidity. It's not as if you know, one of the large institutional money managers is buying or selling. You know, they're going to be around for a long time. They add they add very short-term liquidity to the marketplace. So they make it easier for people to buy and sell. So at any one moment in time, you are likely to be able to buy or sell the stock that you want to buy or sell quite easily. So that's the service that they provide. And in exchange for that, they get, uh, they get to earn the small margin. You could argue that in the absence of that activity, that maybe a retail trader, a retail investor would actually get a little bit better price than the, the best bid. You know, they could achieve a slightly better price and have a, as a result of you know, better return ultimately on their, on their investment. But you know, particularly in, uh, you know, in volatile markets, knowing that there's going to be someone there to make a, to make a price, to, to be willing to buy or to be willing to sell, does fulfill some kind of a service. I think the big question mark, and I'm not sure there have really been enough studies done on this, the big question mark is, what is the price that the consumer is ultimately paying for that service? Is it a fair price? Or are these high-frequency traders making too much, too much money from retail investors? Like you said, there, there hasn't been enough research on this, so I can't say for sure as to this is right or wrong. But my guess is that the the pennies, they're really making pennies on trades. So I think for a retail investor, it's, I mean, unless you're a day trader, it's not really, and even then, it's really not material. You know, when I'm buying stocks to hold for the next five to 10 years, I don't really care if I got it at a dollar or if I got a dollar and five cents, right? I mean, it's, it's essentially, you know, pennies. So I think that a lot of times when we hear things like this, you know, new investors hear what they're doing and they're like, oh my God, you know, I'm not getting the best price because somebody's front running my trades, essentially might get angry about that, but, but you just have to remember it's pennies. And I don't think in the grand scheme of things, it's really a material difference that's really hurting retail investors in most cases. I think that's right. And as, as I said, there's nothing wrong or illegal or even morally wrong that is, that is being done here. I just, I just think that you know, people need to be better educated, better informed, and it needs to be maybe a little bit more transparent. It's been marketed in a way that maybe has been misleading at some point. I think it just I think it could have been presented in a slightly more uh, transparent manner than it has been. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year my buddies and I do a guys trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb 
and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So when it comes to the millennial generation and even Gen Z, why do you think there is so much resistance for them to get started investing? And do you think the rise of cryptocurrency might play an impact on getting millennials and Gen Z into investing? I think the reason that people haven't invested as much up until now, you know, there are a number of reasons. The first is that the finance industry, you know, people like myself for a very long time told the rest of the world that you've got to be an expert in order to do, have anything to do with money. That if you're not an expert, you should stay away because financial markets are dangerous. You could lose your life savings and you really don't know what you're doing and you should leave it to the expert asset managers, investment managers, bankers to manage your money for you. And we created this incredible wall around the industry and using jargon and terms that you know, very, you know, very few people really understand to make it as confusing and, and appear to be as complex as possible. So that, that's one reason. And, and it worked. I mean, for a long time, people said, you know, we're afraid of, uh, of investing. The other problem was that over the last 30 years, all that's happened is that asset prices have gone through the roof. So when I started in my career, the S&P was at you know, 135. Today, it moves more than 135 points in a single day. I mean, it now you know, it got up to 3, 000, almost 3,400. So I mean, it's gone, it's gone up in a straight line. Bonds have gone from 14%. You could get a fantastic return on bonds you know, when I started my career. And now they're, you know, now they're close to zero. And real estate prices have gone through the roof. Gold's gone through the roof. So every, anything that you wanted to invest in is overpriced or has been so highly priced, it's almost as if you know, we priced out all of the younger generations from, from getting involved. And so the people who've made money have tended to be people who've been around for a while and had financial assets. And I think the, you know, the great thing about crypto was that the younger generations all of a sudden felt that here is an asset class that the old guys and, you know, just don't know about. You know, they knew more about crypto than all of Wall Street and there were all the asset managers in Boston and Chicago and San Francisco combined. And so it was an asset class they understood better than anyone else that they could, and they could buy at a sensible price. I mean, obviously, before it went all the way up to 20,000, you know, when it was still trading in the hundreds and then the low thousands, you know, people were, were starting to get involved 
in crypto because they felt they were getting in at the beginning. So I think you know the great thing about crypto is it it and obviously people were making a lot of money or the peer appeared to be a way of getting rich quickly. So obviously that always pulls people in as well. And I think crypto did a great service for the world in the sense that it introduced millennials and Gen Z to the world of investing in a way that's fun, that's exciting. You know, it's twenty four seven and it's always on. So it made it, 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 and it gave them the incentive to learn some of this jargon like market capitalization and liquidity and turnover and bid offer and you know, all these things that they otherwise wouldn't have been inclined to do if it was just left to stock, in, you know, to stock investing. So I think it did a really valuable service in terms, of, in terms of introducing younger generations to the world of investing and helping to educate them. And, you know, now, the, you know, and now what we're starting to see is they're getting more involved in equities. So the, you know, the fascinating thing is when Wall Street was down almost 40% in March, what was the reaction of you know, millennial and Gen Z investors? It was, let's buy it. It's cheap. There's a sale on Wall Street. Let's pile in. For the first time in our lives, it's down 40%. We can actually get in at a level that makes sense. And we saw this massive rush of people into into the stock market. And sure enough, the stock market you know, went, went, through, went through the roof, you know, went, rallied almost 50% after that. And in a way, what we're seeing is, a, I, I would almost describe it as a transfer of leadership from the older investors to younger investors. You know, we saw it first in, in crypto, then we saw it in tech stocks, because again, you know, younger generations understand technology companies way better than old investment managers and asset managers. And then we saw it in retail stocks. I mean, people, you know, again, younger generations connect with Facebook and Starbucks and Netflix you know, better than, than older generations. And a company like Tesla, I mean, we saw on our, old, on our own platform that when Wall Street wasn't believing in Tesla and was going short, was selling the stock in the hope that you know, the price would fall and they'd be able to buy it back cheaper. All of our users were actually buying Tesla. And our users on average, our members on average made about 10% on average in their Tesla positions while Wall Street lost $11 billion being short earlier in the year. So you get this massive divide between the performance of the younger generations who seem much more switched on, much closer to what's going on in the world than the older asset managers. So I think it's been, I think it's been a fantastic thing. Yeah. And you mentioned how a lot of younger investors or newer investors started to run out and buy when everything crashed back in late February, early March. And I think you know, we're re- recently hearing a lot about this in the financial news about new investors making speculative bets on bankrupt companies like Hertz and struggling hospitality companies like Carnival Cruise Lines. How do we combat new investors from becoming speculative day traders and instead help them realize that True wealth building comes from investing for the long term, or do we even see this as a problem that needs to be addressed, or do you think it's okay as things are going? I think it's great that younger people are getting in the game, and when I talk about the game, the game of investing, and it's a game that's so important to their lives because investing is about the future, and learning you know as we say at investor to take charge of your future is one of the most important things that you can do. So I think it's fantastic at one level that the markets are exciting, that people are investing, they're learning. You know, when they look back in 10 or 20 years, because I think the circumstances that we've had in 2020, they're not normal. You know, they're going to look back and they're going to be telling their kids or their grandkids, you know, I lived through that. I made a ton of money or I lost a ton of money through the COVID markets of early 2020. It's just an amazing experience that they will have that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. And I think you know, really making the most of this experience is fantastic. So I think at one level, having people involved in the markets, learning about what markets can do in an extreme, the way that markets can move when they're not behaving normally, I think that's a fantastic education. I think though, as you, you, know, as you say, there are some real negatives in terms of what's going on. And you know, for my part, I don't think that it's appropriate for particularly younger investors to be leveraging up positions, to be using options in the way that they're, you know, that they're being encouraged to use options. Options is a, just an, another, form, another form of leverage. And you know, I ask myself, where on earth are the regulators when you need them? You know, they should be 
One of the things that we're taught uh, in the finance industry very, very rigorously is that investing and the inv- and the choices that you make need to be suitable for your clients. And in, in my view, leverage and option trading is absolutely not suitable for inexperienced investors. And as I said, it's had, it's had tragic consequences. I think the answer in a word is education. And that's the thing that investor specializes in. And you know, we help people learn. Education is a somewhat can be a patronizing word. We, you know, we like to say we help people learn. We help people learn by playing fantasy finance. In fantasy finance, one of the key lessons that you learn in fantasy finance is that investing is about is not about making dollars and cents. It's about generating a return on your capital consistently over time. That's what investing is all about. And it's so that's one of the key lessons. And the, one of the other key lessons that we help people learn in fantasy finance is the importance of diversification. So when you play fantasy finance, you're not allowed to put all of your eggs in one basket. You know, the most on it, you know, typically you can hold 10% of your portfolio in any one stock, and the most you can hold in any one stock is 20%. So, you know, we make it really, really important. We stress the importance of diversification. And the other thing that we do, interestingly, is that we actually ration the number of times people can trade. So we ration the number of trades that people get. And we get huge pushback, you know, to the point that we've actually started making them more available. But the reason that we ration the number of trades is that we also want people to learn that the right thing to do is not to day trade like crazy. If you really want to become uh, an investor, it's about generating returns in in the long run. So it's about education. So we use the game to help people learn. Obviously, we've got the community to help people learn. We use the Investor Academy to help people learn as well. And so the Investor Academy is a step-by-step guide to all the things that you need to know about investing. It's written in really simple language that anyone can understand. There's an audio version as well, so you can listen to it if you don't want to read it. It's bite-sized lessons. There's a practice question at the end of every lesson. There's a quiz at the end of every module. It's split into 10 modules that are about 85 lessons in total. And we go through step-by-step teaching, helping people learn all the theory, and then practically what they need to be doing. So there's a, there's a module or a chapter on financial fitness. What do I need to do to become financially fit? And there's also a module on what we call strategic success. And the first thing in the strategic success module is, you know, we say, set your objectives. You know, it's, you know, you want to take a long-term view and decide, you know, an objective could be, for example, I want to make just 1% on my money every month. If you do that, you'll double your money every six years. So on a, you know, on a 24-year basis, you'll have whatever it is, eight, 16 times your, your money if you take just a, a moderate approach. So I think the answer is education and preventing people from doing things that are not suitable for them. I really think that piece you were talking about at the beginning is super interesting and really important of how you potentially limit how much people can trade and also what a percentage of their portfolio they can have in one holding. I think that's very admirable. I think it's a great thing for new investors, but I could definitely see how you could get pushback from that from people. I could see how they want to you know, exceed those or day trade or just take huge positions as part of their portfolio. I run a concentrated portfolio. So sometimes my positions are a little over 20% of mine. But in general, I think for a new investor, I think that's a really good thing for you guys to do. So definitely hats off for that. And so I've heard it argued that fantasy portfolios and paper investing doesn't do much to help investors because behavioral finance and human psychology is really the hardest part about investing which you don't really get that component from a paper trading account. And then I've also heard people say that it's different mentally to lose money in a paper trading account than it is real money. But then there's also other people who argue that it's a great way to get started and learn how the market works before really risking your own money. So where do you stand on this debate? Do you think starting with paper trading is the most optimal way for a new investor to get started? You're absolutely right. Trading with real money is always going to be different from trading with fake money. And in fact, one of the, the first lesson in module 10 of our academy is what we call top tips, is that the most important thing, you know, we say that the biggest difference when you've finished playing fancy finance and you're ready to trade in the real world 
The biggest difference is managing what I call your emotional capital. So learning to manage your emotions and your emotional capital, that's, that's, the, critical, that's the critical thing. And having the right game plan, the right strategy and the right objectives, that's how you preserve your emotional capital. Because the markets are designed to wear people out of, you know, emotionally and financially. That's what they do. And you know, the trick to being a good investor is to being, having greater stamina than the markets. And you can do that in a variety of ways, including being diversified. But going back to your question, this notion that should people paper trade or should they just trade for real? You know, what we say to people is we're all natural investors. We're born with the ability to invest. We understand human emotions. We understand the concept of up and down. And that's it. That's really, those are the basics. And we, we all have that ability. We then say you can actually learn how to invest in the same way that you learn to play a musical instrument or a sport. And you've got to get fit. That means you've got, to, you've got to read the news. You've got to follow the markets. You've got to talk to people. Then you need to practice. And then you need to perform, right? You wouldn't go and play a concert, a piano in a concert hall without having practiced first. You wouldn't go and play tennis against Rafael Nadal for millions of dollars without going to a tennis coach and practicing your serve and practicing your volleys and all those other things. You know, every professional athlete practices. And yes, when it comes to the real world, Yes, there are differences in emotion, but the way that you prepare yourself for the real world, the way that you learn about your emotions is by practicing. And so I think practice is an essential part of any sport and of investing as well. So not to, not to practice, I think, is folly. And the great thing about playing a game like fantasy finance, everything is real apart from the money. And so you're in the real world environment Yes, the, your emotions may be slightly different, and, uh, and it's more of a fun environment, so there are things that you can do maybe to cheat a little bit, but that's, you know, that's part of the, the fun of playing a game rather than the real world. But the great thing is that you can learn from your mistakes, and the best thing, you'd rather learn from your, from your mistakes with fake money than with real money. And so I think you know, what we've created in fantasy finance and the ability for people to practice or to paper trade, I think is an essential part of learning how to invest successfully. Being an athlete myself, the analogy to professional athletes is one that I've always loved when it comes to investing because, and I find it really interesting. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing for new investors or it's a good thing or, you know, it just is what it is. But I think it's really interesting that a lot of investors will wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be a day trader and I'm going to make millions of dollars doing this. And then, but they don't realize that there's professionals that have done this for 30 years. They have the best technology, they're on Wall Street, they have all the information. And they think they're going to go toe to toe with these people and, and outperform them. And it's like a professional athlete. Like you said, it's competing with a professional athlete. And I've always found it really fascinating that people think that they can step into that realm and do that without having any experience, no education, no background, no nothing. And I mean, it's like becoming a doctor without having gone to school, right? So I've always found that, that dynamic to be really interesting. And, and I think, like you said, the, the best way to combat that is just through education, which is what you guys are doing, what we're trying to do here at the podcast. So. I've always, I've always found that super, super interesting. How do you think COVID-19 is going to impact the financial markets? How do you think it's going to impact millennials in investing? So I fear that we probably haven't seen the end of COVID-19. You know, we might get you know, COVID-2021. <laughs> if you go back to the Spanish flu, there was, a, you know, there was a second wave, which was much, much worse than the first wave. And there was a third wave, which was also worse than the first wave, but not as bad as the second wave. So um, there are some signs you know, in certain parts of the world that we're starting to see a second wave. So I don't think we, unfortunately, I don't think we've seen the end, end of COVID. I think we're gonna, that means we're going to continue to see volatility in the markets, as we saw last week, and then the market kind of all of a sudden rebounded. In a perverse way, the worse that the COVID crisis is, the stronger the markets are going to be because the response from governments and central banks is just to throw money at the problem. So we've seen, you know, the federal government has already spent $3 trillion, which is kind of quite a lot of money. I mean, it's, you know, we, we start talking about trillions, where we used to talk about hundreds of billions, and we're throwing around trillions of dollars. It's other people's money, right? It's our kids' money, it's our grandkids' money. So they're, they're, not, around to, they're not around to complain. But, you know, so governments, the worse the crisis is, the bigger the responses from central banks, money is free and, you know, and governments are giving it away. And in that kind of environment, asset prices go up, right? Financial asset prices go up because people end up, they can't go, they can't go to the malls. 
they can't hang out you know as easily with their friends they've got money okay let's let's invest it in the market you know it's it's better than playing you know a video game and so we're getting almost this perverse correlation between the the covid crisis and financial assets uh, price performance and you know what i fear is that in the long run it's going to lead we're creating a bubble i mean there's no doubt you know we are creating a bubble and i fear in the long run that that's going to that's going to end in tears so i would say expect more impact of covid on the economy expect probably more unexpected behavior from the financial markets and uh, and make the most of this uh, you know make the most of this environment as a learning experience because these are not normal times yeah i've always found it fascinating how fluidly or easily we can throw around the amount trillions or multiple trillions you know it's to me it's mind boggling just because of how big that number is and and i heard an analogy the other day about how People talk about millions to billions. It sounds like a lot, but then when you actually have it as an example of time, what a million seconds is versus what a billion seconds is, and then versus what a trillion seconds is, that really puts it into perspective as to just how much that money actually is. And it's it's a it's really interesting to hear how people can just kind of go with trillions of dollars and, and be okay with it. Kareem, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Where can everyone listening today go to learn more about you and your platform? Please go to the app stores and download Investor. It's available for free, both uh, in the Apple App Store and also the Google Play Store. So download it for free. Join our community. As we say, start playing, learning, investing, and taking charge of your financial future. It's a fantastic community. There's, uh, it's, a, it's a great fun app. I'm sure they'll love it. Also, please follow us on social media. We're Investstreams on Twitter, Investor on uh, Facebook and Instagram and everywhere else. Uh, obviously, check out our website www.investr.com. And uh, when you get on the platform and you download it and you're stuck, then feel free to direct message me and, uh, and have a chat and, uh, and take it from there. We, we look forward to welcoming all of your listeners to Investor. I'll be sure to put links to the platform and all of the social media accounts for Investor in the show notes. So everybody listening today could go check those out there. Kareem, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Robert. It's been a pleasure. All right, guys, that's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.